Good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. If you've got a Bible with you, go with me to the book of Genesis. We are going to be in Genesis chapter 4 today. If you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like to follow along with us, there are Bibles that are there in the chair racks in front of you. And uh, Genesis, for those of you who may not be familiar with the Bible, is the very first book of the Bible. And so if you just start paging a little bit, you'll find Genesis and chapter 4 should be pretty quick to find uh, soon after that. We're going to be spending our time today in Genesis chapter 4. I want to start this morning by talking about uh, the Ottoman Empire, obviously. Uh, the, The Ottoman Empire which began somewhere around the 1300s uh, in, the, in modern day, the region of where modern-day Turkey is, had a very interesting way of determining who the next sultan would be after the reigning one died. What would happen is that the reigning sultan would send his sons off to different cities and places in the empire or when they were around 12 years old, and as they're out in these other places and they are, they are there to be educated, they're there to be trained, whatever it is that they have to do to go to sultan school, they're, they're out there having this happen. And when he dies, generally, whoever made it back to the capital city first became the next sultan. As you can imagine, this created problems. Uh, a couple of problems. One is that As these princes grew up into adulthood, they may have formed loyalties with the people of the region around them that would want them to be the next sultan in line to reign over the empire. The other difficulty is that a brother that did not make it might be very unhappy with a brother who did, and there might be the rest of his reign trying to, to, to prevent himself from being killed by Uh, his brother or brothers who wanted to ascend to the throne. And so one of the sultans, his name is Mehmed II, came up with a brilliant solution. And this solution is proposed in something he wrote called the Conqueror's Law of Governance. And here is the solution that he arrived at. He says, if any of my sons ascend the throne... It is acceptable for him to kill his brothers for the common benefit of the people. The majority of the scholars have approved this. Let action be taken accordingly. Now, I am not a sultan. I can come up with several other solutions that require a little less bloodshed. But that became public policy of the empire. It is understandable for you to have to kill off all of your brothers in order to bring peace to the empire and control to your reign. And so fratricide, the murder of one's brother or brothers, became a part of public policy. Fratricide has long been a part of both our histories and our imaginations. It's in stories from uh, as wide-ranging as Shakespeare's Hamlet to The Lion King. Brothers, are, brothers kill brothers in those stories. Fratricide has been a part of the human story from the very beginning. It's interesting because there are all sorts of crimes for which we do not have the first one recorded. 
We do not know who committed the first assault and battery. We do not know who committed the first theft. We do not know who committed the first of a variety of crimes, but we do know who committed the first murder, and we know that the first murder was a brother against a brother. We have reached now, finally, the end of the first major section of the book of Genesis. Genesis has an introductory section that goes from chapter 1 and verse 1 through chapter 2 and verse 3, and then the book divides up into ten major parts that all are indicated for us very helpfully with a phrase. Do you remember what that phrase is? Yes, okay, we know the phrase. Thank you, somebody saved me. That phrase is, these are the generations of, and that phrase appears ten times throughout this book to give us breakdowns of where we're at, and it is followed by a genealogy and a story, either or, or sometimes both. This is the story of what's going to follow, and this story of Cain and Abel is the last part of the first section, these are the generations of. So what I'd like to do this morning is I would like to consider this story in Genesis chapter 4 in three acts. And when we're done considering this story in three acts, I'd like us to draw some truths from that story that are important for us to to know and to believe this morning. (coughs) We'll begin with act one, which is the sacrifices of Cain and Abel. The sacrifices of Cain and Abel, and we see Act 1 in verses 1 to 7. If you're there in Genesis 4, let's read verses 1 through 7 together. The Bible says this, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well... Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now, whether you have, have had children of your own or not, many of us have had the experience of holding a newborn or a very close to newborn baby. You can identify this certainly with your parents if you're a parent, but, but others can, can identify with this as well. There are all sorts of feelings that, that, that go through our, our hearts and our minds when we are holding a new baby, and one of those feelings that flows through us is just a sense of the potential that this child has. And as you're holding that child in your arms, you are thinking about who this child could be and what this child could do and and what this child is going to bring to the world, and you have 
hopes for this child. You have dreams for this child. You want to help them become everything that God has created them to be. Well, Eve, no doubt, had those same sorts of thoughts and feelings in her mind and in her heart when she held Cain in her arms and thought about the potential for good that Cain would have in the world they lived in. She had just experienced God's word of judgment when he had said, in pain you will bring forth children. She had experienced that judgment, but she was also, as she held that baby in her arms, experiencing God's blessing because he had told them that they were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He told them that if they sinned, they would surely die, and yet she has not yet died, and her ability to assist in in, in filling the earth and being fruitful and multiplying has continued, and there had to have been a note of hope in her heart as she held this baby because God had made a promise to her. Do you remember that promise? That promise that she was going to have a descendant. She was going to have offspring. The Bible often speaks of that using the word seed. And her descendant, her offspring, the seed of the woman was going to put his foot on the head of the serpent. So she looks down at this baby. She is almost certainly thinking, could this be the one? Could this be the one that God has promised? And the Bible tells us that she expresses her gratitude and the Lord for blessing her with his, this child, and she intends to pour herself into raising Cain. She gives birth again to Abel, a second son. And Abel's name is interesting to us because his name in Hebrew is very similar, in fact, almost identical to another Hebrew word that we find numerous times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, I know some of you uh, 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 were not here for Ecclesiastes when we went through that, and if you don't remember this, I don't expect you to because I don't remember what I preached three weeks ago. But there was a time when I preached through Ecclesiastes, and there's a word that occurs on numerous occasions in Ecclesiastes. It's the word for, for breath, for vapor, for emptiness. And Ecclesiastes is grappling with this idea that, of trying to find, find meaning in the apparent emptiness of life. Well, that's Abel's name, and it is a foreshadowing of the life that he is going to live. Cain and Abel have different occupations. Cain is a farmer. Cain is one who works the ground and creates produce from the ground Abel, on the other hand, works with livestock. He's a shepherd. And the Bible tells us that there comes a time when each one of them bring an offering to the Lord. And one of the things that I find kind of interesting and fascinating about this is we, we, we see that and we know all about offerings and sacrifices because we've, we've gone further in the story. But the Bible has said nothing at, up to this point about offerings or sacrifices, which means that God is communicating with these people in ways far beyond what we have recorded for us. We are, we are given little snippets. We're giving little snatches of what, of what was going on. 
But we don't see anything up to this point about instructions or, or uh, about bringing a sacrifice or an offering, how often or when. We don't know any of that information. We simply know that they both bring an offering, and each one carries it out in their own way. Abel gives from the firstborn of his flock. He is a shepherd. Cain offers something from the ground, something that he has grown. And what happens next, in part because we have not read at any point any instructions about what they were supposed to do, what comes next is somewhat surprising to us. The Bible tells us that the Lord had regard. Uh, The Hebrew phrase there simply looks at. God had regard for the offering of Abel. He he was willing to look at the, the offering of Abel, but he had no regard. He did not look at the offering of Cain. And one of the things I I told us at the very beginning of Genesis when we started this a few months ago was that one of the things that we have to do as we read through the Bible together is, and and particularly Genesis, is try to shed some of our assumptions that we've carried with us for maybe our whole lives. Some of those are cultural assumptions because we're reading something that took place many, 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 many years ago in a culture that's vastly different from ours. But some of those assumptions that we need to shed are just the stories that we have have told ourselves or have been told to us, gaps that we have filled in, and I've got one of them here that I'll share with you. Uh, I don't know if anybody else was told this. There were people in the the first service that were told this. Uh, But I was always told that God rejected Cain's sacrifice because he did not offer an animal. Has anybody else ever been told that? That's, that's what I was told my, my whole life in the Bible stories that I heard, that Cain wanted to give an offering from the ground, and so he offered something from the ground because that's what, that's what he had grown when God actually wanted him to offer an animal sacrifice. But does the Bible say that? No. Uh, the Bible actually doesn't say that that's the case at all. And add to that another interesting thing is that we... When we move later on and we see the Old Testament law, there were specific instructions for giving grain offerings, produce offerings. So I think it's a little bit of a jump for us to conclude that that's the reason why God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. I say that not because this is a huge deal that's going to revolutionize your life, but because it's an illustration of how we often come to the Bible and we see what we expect to see. And we constantly need to be asking ourselves, am I seeing what's there or am I seeing what I see because I expected it to be there? And that happens in matters great and small. The Bible doesn't tell us why God rejected Cain's offering, but what I do want you to notice is that the offering and the offerer are connected in the text. That when, when the Bible speaks about the offering, it speaks about the offering of Cain and the offering of Abel, and it seems like, and I think the New Testament sheds light on this, but it seems like God's rejection of Cain's offering had something to do with the heart with which Cain brought that offering. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4 says this, by faith... Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. 
And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel's offering was righteous and Cain's was not, at least in part, because of the heart that brought Abel's was offered in good faith and Cain's was not. And we can see as the story travels on that this is not simply a blunder on, on Cain's part. This is not simply an accident because he did not read carefully or remember or listen carefully enough. We see Cain's heart come through immediately because rather than accepting the rebuke that, God's, that God gives him, rather than, rather than trying to make it right or to ask what needs to happen to be made it right, he gets mad at God. God gives him a warning. And in this warning is, is one of, of several parallels with the previous chapter. There are several themes and linguistic parallels, language parallels that we see that are linked three and chapter four together so that we see, oh, it's happening again. It's happening again. And this is one of those themes because God tells him that sin is crouching at the door and it wants in. And God's using here the same language he used with Eve when he told her that she and her husband would now live in conflict. When he told her, your, uh, uh, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. All those Hebrew words that are used in that verse, I think it's chapter 14, uh, uh, verse 14 of chapter 3, all those words are used again here. Adam had not guarded the garden Sin had an opportunity to sin had been placed in front of him. It was, as it were, crouching at the door. And rather than closing the door to it, Adam opens the door wide and allows it in. And what the Bible is telling us here is that we are seeing this thing played out in subsequent generations because Cain does the same thing. He is angry at his brother because his brother's offering is received. And sin is crouching at the door, it's waiting to be let in, and God is telling him that he must rule over it. And so, many of us have heard this story before on numerous occasions. But if we were reading this for the first time, we would be asking ourselves a question at this point. Is Cain going to shut the door? Or is Cain going to open it further? And of course, we know what happens in the second act, which is what I want us to turn to now. The second act is the murder of Abel, and it's found, <coughs> excuse me, in verses 8 to 16. Let's read beginning in verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. 
Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. I want you to try to recreate a little bit of this horrific scene in your mind. They are out in a field, and one would presume that they are away from everyone else. And I want you to just remember for a moment that we live in a we live in a time when murder is very common. Not only do we hear news of additional shootings in different places or gas stations or homes or cars or wherever it may be, we hear about that th- stuff all the time, but we are entertained by it. So the movies that we watch and the shows that we watch, and the podcasts that we listen to, murder is, is such a normal part of our lives that you can look on any city in the country and discover the murder rate. Okay, it's not that they just, it's not just that they happen, it's like how often are they happening? That's something that we live with and something that is totally normal to us, but go back to a time when there is no murder rate, go back to a time when no murder has yet happened. What must have run through Cain's mind in that moment? Did he think about how much force it might take? Never done that before. Never seen it done. Did Abel see it coming? Were they having an argument with each other that got escalated? Or did Cain come at him from behind? Genesis doesn't give us any of the details of this scene. What we find next instead is that the Lord speaks to Cain once again with a question. And once again, we've got a link to the previous chapter. Because when Adam sins and Eve sins, the Lord is walking in the garden and he asks them a question Where are you? Now we see another question that tells us we're doing the same thing again, but this time he asks the question, where is your brother? Just like in the garden, the Lord knows where the body is hidden, as it were. He invites Cain to come clean, but Cain's heart is so far gone. His flippant response is given, am I in charge of him? Is that my job too now? So I've got to work all day farming the ground that's cursed, and I've got to try to make a living out here, and then on top of that, I'm supposed to keep track of Abel. Is that what we're saying? God tells him. You see, we don't know what's going through Cain's mind right now, but maybe Cain thinks that he's gotten away with it. Maybe Cain thinks 
that he can go into a, a deeper part of the forest and stow the body there. That maybe he can dig a hole that's deep enough to bury him without a trace and claim no knowledge. Maybe he can tie a bunch of weights around him and sink him to the bottom of some sort of body of water. Cain thinks that God doesn't know. God has an informant. It's the blood of Abel that the ground has drunk up. And God says, the blood of your brother cries out from the ground. God speaks a word of judgment now on Cain when he tells him, you are cursed. And again, we have another linguistic tie to the previous chapter because it's the same language he uses when he speaks to the serpent. Genesis is telling us it's happening again. The, this is what the seed, the descendant of the serpent does. Cain is going to be driven further, even further east of Eden. He's going to be driven even further from God's presence. The ground that he has had to tend that has been cursed is now even going to become even more difficult for him to tame. But rather than repenting, rather than throwing himself on God's mercy, he instead argues that the punishment is too great. God, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Being banished further east of Eden is, is not fair for me taking my brother's life, is basically what he's saying. God assures him that he's not going to be killed, that vengeance is not going to be taken on him from what he has done, and he put, puts some sort of mark on him that would identify him in some way that the text does not tell us. All right, that's Acts 1 and 2. Now let's move into Act 3. The legacy of Cain in verses 17 to 25. The exiled Cain leaves a legacy. There is a genealogy that's traced that we won't take the time to read through right this moment, but this genealogy that gets, gets traced ends on a man named Lamech, where we're given more information about him. The Bible tells us that Lamech takes for himself two wives. And while God does not explicitly forbid this in this moment, in this first mention of plural marriage, we see the bad fruit that comes through it throughout the rest of the entirety of the Old Testament. The Bible also records for us a a song or a poem. It's called the, been called by some the song of the sword. It's a, it's, it's some, it's a verse that, that Lamech writes that tells us about the kind of man he is. Verse 23 of chapter 4 says, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Lamech is essentially saying, nobody better mess with me, okay? You mess with me even the slightest way, and you're going to get much worse in return. 
You think God's vengeance on Cain for messing with him is bad? You haven't met Lamech yet. Lamech is one who will take justice into his own hands. Thank you very much. Now, if you are to read through that genealogy there, uh, that, that brief in just a couple of verses as we see the descendants of Cain all the way down to Lamech, they are filled with accomplishment. One is the builder of the first city. Another descendant is a musician. Another is a, a forger of tools made out of bronze or an iron. What we're, what we're doing is we're seeing this line of Cain, this corrupted line, they are accomplishing much. They are building cities and creating culture and they are creating technology. They are advancing in many ways and yet the legacy that Cain has left that overshadows all those accomplishments is the legacy of blood that's reflected in Lamech. Now let me just say, we need to be very careful that we do not read the Bible in a moralistic lens. And there are many people who come to the Bible and they see it as a collection of stories that tell us either to do one thing like this person or don't do something like this other like this person. What happens with that is that it's a it is a very e-centered way of viewing the Bible and it misses the main actor, the hero of the Bible, who is God. And so one of the things that we talk about from time to time is that we don't just read the Bible in order to get good moral lessons for the people who inhabit its pages. But that doesn't mean that we cannot draw moral lessons of any kind from its pages. And to say otherwise would be to go against the Bible itself. Because the Bible says this in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12, we should not be like who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And I just want to say for a moment, in, in highlighting that and highlighting uh, things that Jesus says in the New Testament where he talks about the dangers of hatred and anger and, and the commission of murder in one's heart, as it were, I want to remind us that while there are righteous expressions of anger, and while there are things that we ought to be good and angry about, that it would be unrighteous for us not to be angry about, you and I must be very careful with anger. I say that as a person who struggles with anger. Tolerating those fires, leaving the crack open in that door, leaves you open for Anger to come in and wreak havoc. The Bible warns us as Christian people to not play with anger. It destroys you and it destroys the people around you. And this is Cain's legacy. It is a, lang it is a legacy of anger. And so when we now have come to this point near the end of the chapter, the question that we are asking ourselves or the question that we ought to be asking ourselves is, what is going to come of God's promise to Eve? Because so far, and we're only, we're only just a couple years into this, it is not going well. 
God has promised Eve that she is going to have a seed, an offspring, a descendant, whose heel is going to be placed on the head of a serpent. But as it turns out, her oldest son that held so much hope is actually working for the serpent and kills the younger son. So now what are we supposed to do? Cain's a wanderer east of Eden. He is a fugitive. He is still an angry man. But this passage and this section end on a note of hope. Look with me if you're there at verse 25. Verse 25 of Genesis 4 says this, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. One of the interesting features of this chapter that I want to point out to you from just a literary standpoint is that it begins and ends with a birth. Birth bookends the events of this chapter. And what this chapter, among many things, is doing is showing us the immediate truth of what God said about the serpent in chapter 3. He said there's going to be enmity, there's going to be strife, there's going to be hostility between your seed and her seed, between your descendants and her descendants, between your offspring and her offspring. And so the truth that I want us to consider for a few moments now as we wind down this morning is simply this. The seed of the serpent cannot stop the seed of the woman from saving his people. The seed of the serpent cannot stop the seed of the woman from saving his people. They have been at war from the very beginning. They are at war, which is what caused a brother to kill a brother in the first family. But we see the seed of the serpent at war with the seed of the woman throughout the rest of Scripture. Remember Moses? Remember Pharaoh issuing an order that, that, the, that the, the Hebrew babies are to be exterminated? You see, Pharaoh has something in mind that benefits himself politically. He wants to make sure that their slave labor remains under control, and so he wants to, to keep the population under control. But behind political machinations of somebody like Pharaoh, who is going to such extreme means to maintain power, is the, is the seed of the serpent. Satan is trying to extinguish the seed, the woman. We see it in other places in Scripture as well. Remember when Jesus is born and Herod receives word that he's been born? Herod wants to make sure that there is no challengers to the throne, that there is no unrest in his empire. And so he issues a horrible dec decree, an edict, that, a children, that young boys at a certain age and under are to, be, are to be murdered, are to be exterminated. It is a form of genocide. He has his own political concerns in mind. But behind what he is doing is the serpent. The serpent and his seed are trying to extinguish the seed of the woman. 
We see it in Revelation chapter 12 where Satan is depicted as a dragon waiting before a woman in labor so that as soon as she gives birth, he can devour it. The seed of the serpent has been at war with the seed of the woman from the very beginning. But Satan can't win. The New Testament, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, the biographies of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one of the things that, that Jesus' biographers do in those, in those narrative accounts, in those Gospels, is that they record genealogies for us. And we, of course, want to skip over the genealogies because they're somewhat boring, and so we think the genealogies are there for people who are are, are, are want to you know, study ancestry and history and stuff like that, but let's, let's skip ahead to the walking on water stuff. But those genealogies aren't in there because there was a certain word count that Matthew or Mark or Luke had to hit before they could send it to the publisher. Okay, those genealogies are there on purpose, and one of the things that Matthew does in his genealogy is that he, he, uh, uh, he, he starts... Uh, uh, backward and moves his way forward to the time of Jesus, showing, tracing that line, tracing the descendants. But Luke does the exact opposite. In Luke, chapter 23, in Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 23, Luke has his genealogy in, where, in which he works his way backward from Christ. And the very last verse in that genealogy in Luke chapter 3, verse 38 where it's been saying so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. The last people are the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. That's not just taking up space. That's telling us that the seed of the serpent can't win and has not won because the seed of the woman has come. The Messiah has come and no amount of genocide and extermination or backroom backstabbing has been able to prevent it from happening. God's plan to save a people for himself can't be stopped. And I want you to personalize that for a moment. God's plan to save you can't be stopped. I mean, just think about the history that lies behind it. I mean, Jesus stands before people and he says, he says somewhat seemingly preposterous things like, nobody can snatch them from my hand. This is not Jesus riffing in the moment. This is Jesus connecting his saving work to the work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit from before time began and all the way through human history when the, sea, when the serpent has again and again and again tried to thwart those plans. So if none of those things can stop God from saving His people, then how can Jesus be stopped from saving you? And We'd like to think that we're the exception, that maybe we are beyond His saving reach. You and I are free because the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, cannot be stopped until we are saved. But that victory does come at a price. 
And as we kind of wind down here this morning, I'm going to point out a, a feature of this story that, that may have escaped our attention as we were reading it. Of course, we read it through rather quickly, and you may not have read it in a while, so it's easy for details like this to escape our attention. But one of the things I want you to notice in this story is that Abel never speaks. Isn't that interesting? He is presented as a true victim, where victims often are unable to speak and unable to have a voice. And all the dialogue that occurs, Cain gets plenty of opportunities to speak. Lamech gets opportunities to speak even. But Abel, the righteous one, never gets a chance to speak. Now here, not anywhere else in the rest of the Bible. He has no voice, but his blood does. In verse 10, remember God says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. What's interesting about that is, is, is Abel's blood is not the only blood in Scripture that speaks. The author of the book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12 and verse 24 that we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that does what? It speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Well, author of Hebrews, in what way does the blood of Jesus speak a better word than the blood of Abel? Well, when the blood of Abel cried out, as it were, it spoke a word of condemnation. It spoke a word that said, an injustice has happened and justice needs to be served. But When the blood of Jesus cries out, it speaks a better word. Because when the blood of Jesus speaks, it speaks not a word of condemnation, but a word of redemption. It declares cleansing and forgiveness to those it speaks its word over. The blood of Cain, of Abel, cried out asking for justice to be served. The blood of Jesus cries out and declares definitively that justice most certainly has been served. That God's righteous wrath has been poured out at the cross. And friends, the figurative bloodshed that we have done throughout our lives of sinning, that blood cries out for justice. And we deserve every bit of it. But there's a voice louder than the blood that we've shed. It's the voice of the shed blood of Christ. It forgives and restores and washes us clean. So the question I want to ask to somebody here this morning is simply this. Does that blood speak for you? Does the blood of Jesus speak for you? It sounds odd to modern ears for us to talk about and read about and sing about the blood of Christ, and yet we talk about it and read about it and preach about it and sing about it because it is what God has done in Christ to reconcile us to Himself. 
And the glorious exchange I talked about last week, we bring our sin. Christ brings his sacrifice. We are forgiven and restored. Does his blood speak for you? Has there ever been a time where you have repented of your sins and put your trust in the work of Christ whereby he shed his blood for our sins? If there has not been a time when that has happened in your life, we would urge you where you sit right now to repent and believe the good news that the blood of Christ speaks a better word than anything you have done. In just a few moments, we are going to sing about this. We're going to sing nothing but the blood of Jesus. But let's pray in this moment and ask God to help us rest in what Christ has done, to believe that his blood speaks a better word, and pray for those among us who may not know him. Lord, we thank you for the beautiful way that the message of Scripture is woven together, the depth of it. We might exclaim, as the New Testament says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Lord, we thank you for the shed blood of Christ that speaks a better word. It tells that justice has been served and that we not, need not face your wrath because we have been washed clean. If there's someone here who does not know Christ, would you open the eyes of their heart, give them the gift of faith, and help them believe. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.